Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Today's guest is attorney Mark Terry. Mark is a partner in the firm's Labor, Employment, and Employee Benefits Group and leads its public education practice. You can learn how Mark and his colleagues at Myrick O'Connell can assist you with your business and personal legal needs by visiting Myrick O'Connell. Com. We should uh, note that we're recording this episode in the midst of the coronavirus or COVID-19 crisis. So today, Mark will focus on school law and the COVID-19 crisis. Mark, welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. The first question before we start out with the details is, what is school law? Yeah, that's a great question because school law really is it, it's more a combination of things. It's an interdisciplinary practice, really, that draws on a lot of different aspects of things. And you know, probably the thing that I spend the most amount of my time on are, are labor and employment issues. Uh, school districts are typically well-organized, and what I mean by that is that you know, they operate well, but they are also organized by labor unions. So there's a lot of labor law involved in, in school law, but it's broader than that. Um, we, we deal with things that are involving student rights, um, which can be things like student disciplinary issues. It can be um, student record rec- issues. There's a federal statute, the Family and um, Family Education Rights and Privacy Act (FERPA), and state student records regulations that really confine a lot about the the privacy issues that we have to deal with. Um, a lot of people will certainly be familiar with special education, which I really don't um, practice, and other of my colleagues work in that area. And then we have sort of the, all the things that come with operating a public entity. So you're talking about compliance with government procurement rules, open meeting law issues, conflicts of interest, uh, budget issues certainly are going to be a major issue coming up as we work through the remaining part of this school in, in next year. And then school construction projects, which also is outside my uh, my area of expertise, but other of my colleagues spend time working with school districts on their school building projects, repair work, and, and that type of thing. So it's a really interesting dynamic area of law um, when we call it school law because it has just so many different facets, and I'm sure I'm, I'm even giving a short shrift with the level of detail I've given you thus far. No, that was a great, concise, and easy-to-understand summary of what school law is. So many folks refer to it, and um, I think most people aren't totally sure what that is. So given that, and that most of the, really just about, really all public schools are closed right now, and schools play such a significant role in our communities, what have some of the impacts been of all these school closures? Yeah, certainly there's the the very practical aspect of when schools close, um, particularly for parents with younger children, that means they're not at work, right? There's that kind of practical impact and disruption. Obviously, in this scenario now with the COVID-19 crisis, um, not many people are at work. You know, we have people who are in essential um, businesses that are able to go to work. But uh, a whole lot of people and the vast majority of people are, are more or less confined to their quarters right now. Um, I actually saw just yesterday that three states, I think Indiana, Michigan, and Georgia have all decided they're closed for the year um, with potential for late openings in the, in the fall, which um, really is hard, hard to fathom. But I think there's also a sort of a social fabric to it, right? I mean, there, there's a schools are a place of engagement for not just the students on a day-to-day basis, but but large swaths of the community that have children who are involved in different activities. But I think one of the things that really um, 
flies under the radar for most of the population is how important schools are to providing nutrition to students who are on the free and reduced lunch or meal program. You know, that was one of the biggest concerns that most school districts had immediately. When, when school closed now two and a half to three weeks ago, one of the first most immediate kind of urgent responses was how are we going to feed kids who are only getting the food that they get from schools? You know, and for their breakfast and for their for their lunches. Um, so most school districts have have figured out a way to um, get food to kids, whether it's going to what they call grab and go meals, where they're making basically bag lunches um, on a daily basis. I know um, some some school districts are allowing families to pick up you know, two lunches, two um, two breakfasts every other day, so that they've got enough to feed kids for a couple of days mm. um, and, and quite frankly some school districts have gone beyond that not even worried about um, trying to verify whether the students are, are actually um, for free and reduced meals They're, the food is available for anybody um, who needs it or wants it and so I think that's you know when you when you think about the world we're in right now and you know we're really talking about kind of a survival mentality right only what you really need um, for a lot of us, you know, food is taken for granted. Our complaint is we go to the grocery store and, and they're out of chicken at the moment or something like that. But for, you know, really for 20% of the population, um, the issue of food security is, is a very real thing. And our schools are playing an absolutely critical role in ensuring that, um, that our kids are getting fed even though school's not open. So often, I think we've forgotten about that part of the daily public education routine for kids of all ages, that uh, that's the place where they get a good nutritious meal or a number of good nutritious meals. So thank you for that summary, Mark. Have there been any unique legal issues that have come up as a result of the COVID-19 crisis in terms of schools? Yeah, it, it's been a bit of a whirlwind here. Um, you know, I think the the, the meals were an issue at first. There was a, a, an issue at the federal level about um, what the reimbursement, because that program is is something that um, has a, a federal reimbursement attached to the money um, that we use to, to fund those programs, and whether or not reimbursement was going to be offered to all districts or only those that have uh, more than 50% of their students on free and reduced. And so that was that was an issue um, that districts are trying to figure out what to do with right up front. Fortunately, that, that has been expanded. Now all districts can um, can obtain the reimbursement because there's a real question about well, where's the money coming from. That was something that, you know, you never have to worry about in the past. Um, I think some of the other things that have, have come up uh, certainly have been as we move to remote learning, some school districts, some private schools out there um, certainly were well positioned. You know, they had gone to technology models years ago of what were called one-to-one programs, meaning one one device like a Chromebook for each kid or one um, iPad for each kid. And so they, they had built frameworks around that in the past that really were for enhanced learning or, or to use supplement, supplemental educational techniques to the, the traditional classroom. But that, I think, probably was a minority of districts and, and typically the more affluent ones. So those those school districts were, you know, kind of well positioned. But even there, you know, the whole framework of how teachers teach, um, how students interact has changed so significantly. And, you know, when you're talking about things that come up in a collective bargaining agreement and and the arrangements that exist between school districts and their employees, um, distance learning or remote learning 
is a completely different animal than the way it was before. How do you measure the workday? Um, how are you asking teachers who have never been involved in, in delivering instruction using technology from a, a remote distance? How do you get them to um, to engage in that, learn that? I mean, there was there was sort of crash course, no pun intended, on on professional development with technology. Um, you know, and, and how do we how do we get people to a position they can even function with this? Because some just never had used it. So, mm. you know, one of the major issues was collective bargaining over um, those kind of obligations. What was the scope of them going to be? Um, I think there were fears from some educators of, well, if I'm going to be evaluated on this, and how am I going to be evaluated on? If I get a bad evaluation, that could impact my professional standing and, and my job. And so there are a lot of issues really related to the remote learning, whether it was that extreme on things or just sort of how much am I supposed to be doing? Are we replicating the school day, for example, on a, a block schedule that you would see in the high school or middle school? Um, you know, are we are we kind of doing math for the first block, um, ELA for the second block, et cetera, or are we doing something different? And those kind of challenges have to be sorted out. I think for a lot of districts, when um, – when the closure first happened, the response was, you know, let's let's just try to keep students engaged. And that was the direction that was coming from the Commissioner of Education from Massachusetts, Jeff Riley. When the the uh, closure was now extended out to, to May 4th, um, the decision was made that we needed to do something more. And so this is something that literally is being hammered out this week um, as we're talking the week ending February 3rd, um, February, excuse me, April 3rd. Um, and moving forward, school districts are really now trying to figure out how to kind of bolster their programs and, and get things in place. So there's been a lot of negotiation with unions and, and on a district-by-district basis of how that's going to happen. Um, evaluations that would typically happen under a contract, they can't be done. You know, there there are just inherent impossibilities in that because there's no ability to get in a classroom and observe somebody. Um, those have been some significant issues that are, are really unique to our time. People are looking at changing their calendars, and, and right now the debate is um, whether schools should operate as they are now through the scheduled April vacations. I think a lot of districts are looking at that and, and negotiating over that issue. Um, they're making decisions about whether to continue to pay employees, how they're handling, are they doing layoffs, are they not? Um, there was a provision in the last stimulus bill, the one that passed last Friday, right. that encouraged, um, I forgot the exact language on it, but it really, it, it stated that you know, school districts, in order to receive federal education stimulus funds, should make best efforts, and it's not a, exactly the terminology, but effectively best efforts um, or reasonable efforts to retain employees and contracted services. And that's figuring out what that means. Um, how it's going to be applied at the state level is, is really uncertain. Um, I'm part of a the National Council of uh, School Attorneys, and it's an a ongoing discussion on our, our listserv um, right now because people are trying to figure that out. And the same thing, the one that's probably the most interesting and frustrating is bus contracts. Most school districts are um, have contracted bus services. I think probably about 80% of them in the state do. And, you know, those buses aren't rolling right now. And yet there are contracts that suggest that school districts should be paying their, their bus contractors. That conflicts with some provisions in the state law about paying for services that aren't being provided. Um, and yet there are very real concerns about, you know, if, if there is no money flowing to a bus contract to a bus company right now um, and the bus company goes under, 
you open your schools a month from now, um, if we're able to do that, how are you getting your kids to school? Because your bus company isn't there anymore. Right. So there's some really, you know, right. you know it's a wide ranging right. set of things, but it's a really unique set of issues. And um, and honestly, it, it is moving uh, at lightning pace. I, I heard somebody, uh, I think I was watching CNN or something, and they, they were referring to something that happened um, the day before and realizing it was only 24 hours earlier, but it felt like about six weeks. And I think that accurately reflects sort of the pace at which things are moving because things are changing just every single day. Absolutely. It does seem like there are some days where I'm not even sure what day it is uh, lately because they all just meld together. Weekend days seem like weekdays. One thing that you just uh, said, Mark, that really resonated with me is I think sometimes we forget about the fact that teachers are unionized. They have contracts. They have a kind of a statement of work and work conditions in the collective bargaining agreements. This is all now kind of, uh, I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but torn asunder now where they're doing distance learning. They've got to learn distance learning procedures. They've got to do this. They've got to do that. That is really very different in scope and nature of what they've been doing and what are the duties to bargain that in the in you know in contracts and, and terms and conditions of employment. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely a, a key part of this. I mean, even I think it would be a challenge even if school districts just had the ability um, to just issue by edict. This is what you're going to do. It would still be a challenge having people do it well right. and yeah. and adapting because you're moving from you know think about it. If somebody had said to you, We're, we have done this the same way with classroom teaching uh, for the last hundred years. And somebody said, all right, so we're going to move to you know, integrating more technology. No one in their right mind would think about doing that by saying, okay, you got to make that change in two weeks right. you know, or a week, right? I mean, that, that is really what is going on right now. And, and, you know, school districts are not, I think, in any position um, where they're representing to people that, hey, we've got this all figured out. But you're right. I mean, the, the idea of bargaining is a significant thing. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think the state did that was probably smart to smooth this a little bit is over the last few weeks, there were discussions between the commissioner of education, representatives of the two major teachers unions, which are the Mass Teachers Association and the, um, the Mass Chapter of the American Federation of Teachers, along with representatives from the Mass Association of School Superintendents and the Mass Association of School Committees, to try to create a framework that everybody could support. And so there was a memo that came out from the Commissioner of Education uh, a week ago, Thursday, that outlined the framework of what remote learning could look like. And, and it bore the signatures of representatives of each of those groups saying that they supported it. And it didn't mean that the local obligation to bargain, because to your point, there is, when you change something, um, there is an obligation to bargain. And when you have a contract in place, it doesn't necessarily get set aside because the world gets set aside. Some contracts have provisions that allow for flexibility, others don't. But whenever you're talking about changing terms and conditions of employment, which are the hours of work, how work is done, um, how people are compensated, you, you, need to, you need to be evaluating whether there's an obligation to bargain over that. And, you know, I do, like I said, I think the commissioner, the steps the commissioner took, the process he used has made that easier for most. And quite frankly, most of my clients, they're they're, um, really being able to work well with their associations. Some of them, that's because they've had good working relationships to date. Um, Other places, it's been sort of a reality of, well, if we're not doing this, 
and people are just sitting at home doing nothing, then I'm laying everybody off, and, and then the associations do realize that a paycheck and, and a best efforts to, to continue teaching kids is, is really what they want to be doing. Um, I am aware of a few school districts out there um, where there are more significant struggles. Um, thus far, I, I, none of my clients have had to, to deal with that. Um, but bargaining over these changes is a really significant issue, and um, fortunately, like I said, I think the teacher associations, for the most part, have recognized the uniqueness of this, and that if they were to be a barrier to progress into educating kids, it probably would not be in their best interest in the long term either. We're talking with Mark Terry, a partner in Myrick O'Connell's Labor, Employment, and Employee Benefits Group, and he also leads its public education and school law practice. And uh, we're talking with Mark about how COVID-19 has affected schools in Massachusetts. And let's uh, step back for one second, Mark, and uh, maybe try to see what happens, we hope and pray, after this whole crisis ends. Do you see the COVID-19 outbreak changing how schools do things? Are we going to move to more remote or distance learning permanently? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see that. I quite frankly see that, um, you know, I think the reaction from everybody who's been isolated is maybe to appreciate more um, how much they need the connection. And so I don't, I don't see us replacing our school buildings with computers and, and putting people in, in their houses all the time, for sure. But I do think that the there will be lessons learned here. And I think one of those is the need for backup plans, you know, to, for the preparation for that. And, um, and so I would anticipate there will be a lot of discussion um, from school districts that didn't go and become those one-to-one districts. And I, and I should say, you know, that is not a necessarily a decision that people all made for financial reasons. There are a lot of districts that really believe in the power of the in, in-classroom connection and didn't want to change their culture to replace people with machines. You know, they were, they were concerned about that. So they were very thoughtful decisions, but I do think um, there is going to be a reality of people saying, okay, you know what, this thing happened. Um, it was real. It wasn't something that happened in a far off land as uh, prior outbreaks have, have been viewed, I think generally by the public. And this has a very disruptive effect on, um, you know, not on how people, not just on how people live, but also on our economy. And we're going to have to think about how to, to be prepared to deal with those types of things. So I would fully expect that there's going to be significant discussion and, and adapt, adaption, if that's a word, um, to, you know, different technologies and, and making sure that staff are trained, you know, the professional development we, we alluded to earlier in this call, is actually there, so people know how to do this better. And, and I suspect that that will come from school districts and school committees on the management side of things saying we need to be better prepared to deal with this going forward. But I also suspect it's going to come from teachers' associations saying that was really scary, or I didn't know how to do this, or I started working with this and I can see potential in it, yeah. and I'd like to incorporate it more into my my teaching and learning. So I certainly see that we're going to we're going to be looking at at that. We're going to be looking at the technology issues and the remote learning in a different way. You know, before it was kind of a nice new technology. How do we utilize it now? I think it's going to be a sense of um, organizational stability and necessity to look at that. I also think that people are going to be um, more mindful of contracts they enter into. One of the things that we didn't really use this terminology earlier in the call, but um, when we're talking about bus contracts, there's a terminology 
that's called force majeure, which basically talks about a, a lack of obligation to continue the contract or continue payments if some major outside force interferes with the need for the service. And I, I suspect that school districts are going to be very careful to include such provisions into service contracts going forward. And at that point, it's going to be you know something that is more um, more directly negotiated and, and consciously negotiated so that some of the things that we're struggling with now are not a problem in the future. I also think that there's likely to be, you know, we've had in Massachusetts a uh, paid sick leave law uh, that went into place a few years ago. It actually doesn't apply to public sector employers. Most school districts have very substantial paid leave benefits. Um, But, you know, when you think about what's going on at the federal level right now, we haven't even talked about the new federal legislation, really, um, that provides for paid sick leave and paid FMLA leave. Um, for reasons related to, to the outbreak here. You know, I, I, I question whether or not there's going to be a, a realization on the part of employers that there does need to be a better balance to support um, need, medical conditions, uh, taking care of people with medical conditions. We've had the Unpaid Family Medical Leave Act for 27 years now, yeah. but there have been dialogues at state level, that has already happened in some places, um, but there's been discussion at the federal level for some time predating this about you know, paid benefits and how would that work. Um, I think we're going to see a societal response to that um, at the legislative level. Um, and I think, you know, kind of closing the, the, maybe closing the discussion where it started a little bit, you know, I think we're going to recognize schools as a center of community again. You know, I think we're we're realizing how tied together we are, um, which we didn't always realize when we were until we were pulled apart. And um, you know, so I think that the idea of school as integral part of the community is really going to be reborn um, and and appreciated um, by a lot of people in a way it wasn't before. And and I think that's a good thing. You know, that's hopefully a, a positive takeaway. And. The, the force of community in a lot of places I think people will, will look at in a different way and, and um, hopefully that is something that lasts for more than a few weeks after we all get back together and get back to work and, and uh, some sense of normalcy resumes. That is indeed a perfect way to end this conversation. I want to thank you, Mark. appreciate your taking the time to appear with us. How can folks contact you? First, I want to thank you, Howard, for, for hosting. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I can be reached at, um, in, at um, mterry um, at myrickoconnell.com, M-I-R-I-C-K, O'Connell, O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L.com. And my direct dial in the office is 508-860-1447. I'm always happy to talk to people. Thanks so much, and best of luck and stay safe. You too. Thanks, Howard. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. I'm Howard Kaplan. On behalf of Myrick O'Connell and attorney Mark Terry, take care. Take care.